Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the clock is ticking on fiscal year 2021. It certainly has the potential to be at least as busy as last year, potentially more so. And of course, last year was a record-breaking year in terms of government acquisition. The next data deluge could drown federal agencies. You really have to understand where all of the data is and what all of the data is and what it means. And billion-dollar buying decisions at the top of the federal government. Even though it is a technology modernization fund, the starting point is not technology, it is business, mission. It's Tuesday, September 21st, 2021. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon at 4 o'clock, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Air Force will work more with companies that understand the strategic landscape of the service, according to Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall. He told the Air Force Association's Space and Cyber Conference he'll push for more collaboration between product developers and end users. Kendall says traditional defense contractors have more, quote, intellectual capital than the military uses. The Department of Veterans Affairs will look at revamping its enterprise cloud service. A new request for information says the department's open to replacing one or both of its current providers or adding additional providers. The VA uses Microsoft Azure and Amazon Web Services for its enterprise cloud now. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency could have its leader's term in office locked in if some members of Congress get their way. Tim Starks is senior editor at CyberScoop. He's writing about the potential change at cyberscoop.com. Tim, welcome. Thanks for coming on. You write this. Uh, you write that this effort and other things that Congress is considering would make CISA more powerful. In what ways would some of this legislation make CISA more powerful? Tim, welcome. Hey, thanks. I, you know, on the first thing we we started talking about here, the idea is that if the CISA director's term straddles more than one presidential term, they will be less subject to political uh, pressure or influence in the same way that the FBI director's term straddles uh, 10 years. That's sort of the principle of it. The budget proposals are pretty uh, crazy right now. Um, you know, CISA is a $2 billion agency. They already got $650 million more earlier this year. Uh, one committee, the Appropriations Committee, which has the most say over this, of course, um, ha- is going to give it another $400 million, uh, if it gets its way. Uh, of course, we're waiting on what the Senate might do with that. Uh, that's always the problem with Congress. You never know who's going to who's going to take it all the way to the finish line. But you know, the House Homeland Security Committee just uh, this past week said we're going to give CISA yet another eight hundred million, and that's in the, the president's big you know three point five trillion dollar package. So those are the those are the money things, and then you know there are other things that might come up. Obviously, the the one of the big issues since the the ransomware attacks of the of the last few months and going all the way back to the solar winds breach in in December of last year. There's been idea a discussion to make it such that if a company that is a major, major company, like a critical infrastructure owner, if they get hit by an attack, they need to in some way report that to the federal government. And CISA is the hub of all of that in in all of the bills that are currently circulating and being proposed. What's the likelihood that some of these things that you've just described wind up becoming the reality of it? Oh, yeah. I've covered Congress long enough to know that if, if all things are being equal, it's safer to bet on nothing happening. Um, I say that as not as not a cynic, believe it or not. Just that's just experience. Uh, Congress does get things done, but it's very difficult sometimes to get things done, and there are some complicated factors with this. On the sister director idea uh, and, and the five-year term, it's a little vaguer to me about why that had had not happened last year. There was an awful lot of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission recommendations, 
of which this is one, that got into the defense authorization bill, but there was some of it that I'm told that they just ran out of steam. Um, there are also some concerns, as I understand it, broadly about whether the assistant director should be on even roughly even footing to the FBI director. It is an agency that has not, until recently, uh, been politicized. Uh, you might recall that Chris Krebs got fired last year for challenging the president on election disinformation. So, um, you know, there's maybe there's more of a need for it now than there was in the eyes of some lawmakers who maybe weren't as convinced before. Um, that might give it a little momentum, but but there are always there's always something that's going to come up with Congress, I'm afraid, and it's just a matter of whether it's going to get whether it's going to derail it entirely or just slow it down. Tim Starks of CyberScoop, thanks very much as always. Great to see you. Thanks. CyberScoop is presenting Cyber Week October 18th through the 22nd. It's a week-long cyber festival with hundreds of events and lots of top leaders from tech, education, and government that'll be there both digitally and in person. You can learn more and register now at cyberweek.us. The countdown to the end of the fiscal year is on. Fiscal 2021 ends September 30th. That year end could bring the busiest days ever for the next nine days and then the slowest days ever starting October 1st. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. He writes the Week Ahead newsletter every Monday. Larry, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on. The first part of this is between now and September 30th. What I'm getting at with the busiest nine days ever is all this money that's in the system now that agencies have nine days to get out the door. Does that potential model make sense to you that this could be the busiest nine days in government spending ever? Francis, it certainly has the potential to be at least as busy as last year, potentially more so. And of course, last year was a record-breaking year in terms of government acquisition. Uh, September is always backloaded. Uh, it's a function of many things, Francis, one of which is Congress passing appropriations bills late. But also, to be fair to them, it's a function of uh, federal agencies not being able to get things out the door through sometimes what is a complicated acquisition process. So, yes, there's going to be a lot going on between now and September 30th. I always say, too, that September 30th is always the longest day of the year. Uh, it can go on for a while, depending. So, uh, but if you're a government contractor, this is kind of your make or break time of year. It used to be, Francis, that if you were a services company with big service projects, you mostly had those locked in by now, but that's not the case anymore. So whether you're selling products, solutions, services, this is your single busy time. I was in a meeting with one of the biggest vendors in the government space about a week ago, and I said, when do you start preparing for September? And he said, October. And that it, that fits with everything that you've told me over the years, Larry, that this is not something that one should be thinking about starting now or two weeks ago. This is something that people should be thinking now and in the next couple of weeks for next fiscal year to make sure that they're prepared both from the government side and from the vendor side, right? That's right, Francis. This is a time when you're a contractor, all the relationship work that you've done, all of the client calls that you've been on virtually this year, all of the pitching for acquisition methods, this is when it all comes home to roost and comes together. If you haven't done that work, and if you haven't done that work on a specific project, then you might want to put your resources elsewhere into something that uh, other people haven't been following for weeks or months. You're going to definitely be at a disadvantage. Doesn't mean it can happen for you, but it does mean it's going to be a steeper hill to climb. Similarly, if you're a government agency, uh, 
procurement acquisitions take a while. We saw the other day that procurement acquisition lead times, Francis, are up to 74 days. That's a really long time. And it can be even longer because that's the average time for a, a PALT. And, you know, it's not unusual for it to be 100 days or more. So if you're a government agency, you need to think about that acquisition strategy, what it is you're going to be buying and how it is you're going to be buying it really early in the next fiscal year. So October, November, December, so that when you get the funds and the funds may not be released till September, you're ready to go as soon as the green light goes on. Otherwise, uh, you can see money returned to the Treasury, priorities not met, uh, things that don't work out well for either government or industry. So that lead time is the main thing that you've told me over the years is the reason that for the next nine days, the schedules are just going to get flogged to death. I mean, that's that's where the bulk of the buying is going to happen for the next nine days, isn't it, Larry? Francis, a lot of it's going to go through the GSA Multiple Award Schedules Program. Uh, other business goes through similar types of programs like the schedules. I would expect to see business go through NASA Soup. That's a big popular contract for IT product at end of fiscal year. Uh, similarly, other government-wide acquisition contracts, whether it's something like GSA, Alliant, or Oasis, outside of the standing contract level, looking for sole source justifications, that's going to really play into you if you're a small business. It's easier to say uh, we need to make our small business numbers. We can justify doing a sole source. Francis, that's going to be particularly true this year for women-owned small businesses and hub zones, two areas where the government came up short in meeting their goals in FY19. All right, that's the lead up to September 30th. Sun goes down. Midnight, September 30th comes, and October 1st is here. And right now, we don't know what that looks like uh, fiscally for the federal government. You write in the Week Ahead newsletter this week, you think there's a 50-50 chance that we have a government shutdown. I haven't heard anybody else in this marketplace that's that bullish. Well, not I don't, I'm not suggesting you want a shutdown, but who is that convinced that there's going to be a government shutdown and not a series of CRs. Why do you think that's the case, Larry? Francis, uh, Congress is playing a very risky game. They are playing the ultimate game of legislative chicken uh, right now. Uh, they've loaded up, the majority in the House and the Senate have loaded up a continuing resolution, the bill that you need to keep the government open after September 30th with uh additional spending, some of which people will like for hurricane relief, but some spending that's added to that bill is kind of really targeted and, you know, political payback for favors granted. Not everybody in the House or Senate Republican side is going to like that. So a loaded up continuing resolution by itself is going to be more difficult to pass than a so-called clean CR. But add to that, Francis, the fact that uh, as of yesterday, the continuing resolution bill has now been tied to a vote to increase the debt ceiling. We've been told that sometime in October, the debt ceiling needs to increase or the government uh, will not be able to continue to borrow money. Tying those bills together really puts you on a very high wire danger area. Hopefully there's a net. Uh, 
you better make sure you've got the votes, particularly in the Senate, for that approach, because if you don't, then it's all going to come crashing down around you. I think there's a really good chance for that happening. I'm standing by my 50-50. I might even go uh, 60-40 in favor of a shutdown right now. Oh, Larry, uh, because- you're making my heart go it's not this is not healthy for me larry because well i don't think i think that you're not going to see uh people blink francis i think you're going to see people who say you know i'm not comfortable with spending all this extra money uh i'm not comfortable with the debt ceiling increase with no discussion about how we're going to trim spending and remember it's 50 50 vote in the senate and there are only like three or four votes uh really in play really in play in the house so uh, the opportunity for things to go down uh, are pretty good. Uh, and then uh, we'll have to see. And the other part of this, Francis, is that you know, this is not the only spending bill that Congress is being asked to consider. Taken together, there's a strong group of people on the Hill that don't uh, want to vote for this much new spending. Now, if it does go ahead and pass, the current deal for the continuing resolution is that it would fund the government through December 3rd, uh, do an uh, expansion, suspend the debt ceiling limit, uh, and load up uh, some goodies for hurricane relief and other types of spending. Uh, and then we all get to live to contract again another day as, October, as of October 1st. Uh, it's going to come right down to the wire in the Senate on this, Francis, so watch that space. All right, I have to go take some Tylenol. Thanks very much, Larry (laughs) president of Allen Federal Business Partners. Appreciate it, my friend. Thanks, Francis. You can find a link to Larry's Week Ahead newsletter at fedscoop.com. Coming up on today's Daily Scoop podcast, billion-dollar buying decisions for the Tech Modernization Fund. One of the board members will take you inside the decision-making process. The Daily Scoop podcast lineups available ahead of time every day on Twitter. You can see what's coming at Daily Scoop Pod. The chief data officer at the Department of Agriculture is getting a new job next month. Ted Kalk will join the Office of Personnel Management to become its CDO. Jonathan Album is federal chief technology officer and principal digital strategist at ServiceNow. He's former chief information officer at USDA. Jonathan, welcome. It's great to see you again. You're excited, I saw on LinkedIn, about the transition of Ted from agriculture to OPM. What do you think he brings to that agency, and what do you think he will continue to bring to the broader CDO community and data community in government, Jonathan? Welcome. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm really excited to to be here to get this launched. Um, you know, I had, a, as, as you noted, I had a chance to work with Ted at USDA. I was always very impressed with his ability to think strategically and think about uh, the big challenges we, we had at the department, not just from uh, the office of the CIO perspective, but from the programs, uh, because he came up through programs. And I think that's one of the key things that he brings to OPM, an ability to think about data as a strategic asset, as a tool for program delivery, program excellence for program outcomes, uh, more so than just a uh, asset inside an IT organization. Data is something that, you know, is, it's the, uh, it's the new oil, it's a uh, use your cliche, pick your cliche, but it, it is what makes our government work. And, and, and as an individual, Ted understands uh, the complexity of, of government and uh, of how program delivery operates and executes and the ability to understand that the work and the data and how it moves through the agency, how that work flows is, is really critical. And I think he, 
he is somebody who's going to bring that in, not just inside an individual agency, but cross agency based on the work that he's done with the chief data officer council. I ask this not specifically to Ted's transition, but to agency to agency situations in general, more broadly across government, Jonathan, is managing data like personnel data the same, different, or it doesn't matter compared to managing the data that he managed at USDA? I think there's some things that are similar. You know, the first the first thing is, you know, you really have to understand where all of the data is and what all of the data is and what it means. So whether you're dealing with uh, data about federal employees or farmers or uh, program recipients, um, what's the data, where is it, what does it mean? What's the context of that data? How is it created and how it's used? I think that the difference might become, uh, you know, more so in what do we do with that data and what are, what are the outcomes? Are we trying to drive to greater program participation or are we trying to look for um, areas of improper payments or fraud or in, in, this, in this future case, how do we use uh, data to get the most out of the federal workforce, which has clearly been through a lot over the past uh, several years. Uh, and now dealing with the uh, repercussions of COVID and return to workplace scenarios and vaccination requirements and whatnot. So one, I think the, the opportunity is to really look at all of that data, understand how it applies to a federal employee's journey through uh, an agency, through their career across multiple agencies, how we use it to train them and reskill them and uh, give them the best opportunities. So, you know, you think about uh, federal employee development and growth as a program outcome. And then it becomes, I think, even more similar to maybe some things he's done in the past. Think about your experience as a chief information officer in the government. What did you want to know or what would you want to know today about your employees that either OPM or the Chico office at your agency could supply you with? Stuff that you don't just know inherently by working with these folks every day. Sure. Um, you know, the uh, you know I think you start with uh, some information around demographics and um, how long different people have been at the agency that you know is an indicator of how well they've come to learn programs and uh, how the agency operates i think also where are they in their career are they um, you know are they closer to the beginning or are they closer to the end because that begins to shape some training uh, requirements you might have in your organization or reskilling and then you know from a, a skills perspective uh, if i'm thinking about my it employees well, where are their skill sets? How current are they? And um, do we have the right skill sets to take on the responsibilities for the technologies that we're, we're operating? Obviously, agencies uh, partner with industry organizations all the time to deliver a mission. Um, but, you know, are, are the federal employees able to uh, run these systems or understand the technologies? Can they innovate on top of what's already been created? And I think that's a really important question. You can't you can't assume that. You need to understand what the skill sets are and, you know, where are, the, where are the people who have real talent and potential to take on those systems. So I would want to understand some um, aspects uh, similar to those relative to my to my staff so we can make good decisions about how we organize and how we uh, prepare for the future. Yeah, and, and what I th was thinking of as you were talking about that was that preparing for the future element, Jonathan, because if you have that kind of precise data on what you have and where they are, then you also have the inverse, which is precise data on what you need in order to have the entire workforce that you need to drive the mission of the agency, right? And I think, I think that's even more important today, especially if I can have some uh, related data about where skill sets might exist 
in the broader, uh, you know, in, in the broader universe, because, you know, in a, in a post-COVID world, as we uh, think about how we organize, we're past the point of uh, recognizing that virtual teams can be successful and hybrid teams can be successful. And I no longer have to hire specifically in my geography. I can open positions that are, um, you know, uh, across the United States and they can be remote positions or some, you know, some form of uh, long-term telework. And if I know where skills exist in the country and I can open positions in a particular location, I might be able to hire people to fill those gaps more effectively than if I'm constrained to a geography. So I think you need to be able to marry up where your employees are skill-wise with where the skills exist and understanding what you need, uh, which means you have to understand your data and understand your technologies and you know how your, your mission operates uh, presently. Now you can marry those things up. And you're better positioned to solve uh, for for long-term problems. We've been given, you know, some tremendous flexibility uh, based on our experience over the eight, past eighteen months with uh, you know dealing with the pandemic. We have about a minute left, Jonathan. What would be the most important thing that you would counsel Ted to do first day or first week that he walks into OPM? Is it that idea that you said earlier about learning what you have and where it is? Yeah, I think you have to understand the data understand how um, the data and the work flow through the organization and not just through OPM, but across the broader federal community. What, um, what kinds of data and activities drive those mission outcomes that make OPM successful and make federal HR technology successful. Um, as you can understand those, uh, those abilities, now you can, he can work with program owners to rethink and redesign processes and uh, to make them 21st century digital processes that, that people expect as they apply for jobs or they navigate their federal career. And then the last thing is uh, to think about what are the baseline for how these op- uh, actions operate today? And um, then uh, as improvements are made, changes are made, you know, how do you measure value? How do you show the positive outcomes and tell that story so um, people can buy in and want to invest more in data and related activities. And that's how I believe that we, we grow a strong uh, HR data community and we improve the federal employee experience. Jonathan Album, thanks very much as always. Great to have you on the program. It was really a pleasure. Hope to be back soon. Thanks. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast coming on Wednesday's program, Data Drives Decisions at the Department of Veterans Affairs. The Chief Data Officer at VA, Shmendra Paul, is on Wednesday's Daily Scoop podcast. It debuts at 4 o'clock Wednesday afternoon on fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The Technology Modernization Fund has a billion dollars it can award to agencies for IT transformations. The board has new members and a new leader, too. One of the newest members is the Chief Technology Officer at the Small Business Administration, Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. It's great to see you. What is your sense of the projects that the TMF board receives well from agencies, both recently and over time. Welcome, Sanjay. Thank you, Francis, uh, for having me back on your show and congratulations on your great show. It's an important aspect of the federal civilian IT world. So, uh, you know, to, to your question about the Technology Modernization Fund, uh, as you know, the, the American Rescue Plan appropriated $1 billion for the TMF, and there were four specific priorities defined. First and foremost was uh, uh, modernizing uh, high-value systems specifically that were in response to COVID-19 across the federal landscape. 
cyber security, as we all know, has been front and center, so continues to be a, an important aspect of looking at the priorities for the TMF. Uh, third was about public-facing digital services and improving citizen experiences, and so investments into technologies that enable that aspects. And fourth was around cross-government or shared services uh, use so that we can be more efficient and effective. In terms of a question about what kinds of uh, proposals we have been seeing and what kind of responses we are looking at, uh, certainly as we define the priority areas in the TMF, uh, we naturally expected a lot more responses hitting the first two categories, modernization of systems as well as cybersecurity, and especially as you know, with the cybersecurity executive order as well. So that's sort of the highlight and which is in, in expectation or anticipation of what we were hoping to see. When you, not you personally, when one defines a high value system in response to COVID, is that potentially also going to be a high value system after COVID or are there potentially two different ways that one should think about defining what a high value system is versus the future? A good question and an important distinction, Francis. So typically, you know, there is a high value asset definition from a DHS CISA standpoint, uh, and that is sort of seeming similar to the high value systems for COVID-19 response. In my assessment and my opinion, they're not necessarily the same. Uh, for COVID-19 response, there were systems that were sometimes stood up by agencies, at least at the SBA, we stood up a few portals that were not necessarily present before COVID-19. And so I would not necessarily conflate the two to say that high value assets as were defined previously are the same as the high value systems for the COVID-19 response. Uh, they could be overlaps, but not necessarily exactly the same. What I'm getting at there is if I'm at an agency and I'm thinking about uh, creating a proposal for maybe uh, the next batch, I, I know you have a hundred or so that you're considering now, the board is considering now, but if I'm thinking about something for the next round, I probably could make a pretty good argument that a system that's not necessarily COVID related is a high value system and thereby uh, is uh, a valid candidate for some of that money, correct? That is absolutely correct. Uh, I think ultimately the idea is if it meets one or all four ideally criteria, you know, it is modernizing a important system or high value system for the agency. It's helping the mission deliver the mission uh, elements more, more specifically. And, and, and again, in, in the current administration, the focus is around underserved communities and, and equity. And so sometimes technology can help us reach those underserved communities better. So investments in technology-based systems that allow us to reach those segments is certainly a good candidate uh, for a TMF uh, proposal. Yes, you're absolutely right. I'll ask you the same question that I asked Alan Thomas, former TMF board member last week, and that is, as a board member, what do you personally see in a proposal that causes you to say to your fellow board members, we should really do this one? Make you, and that can be as broad or, and, or narrow as an, uh, of an answer as you choose, Sanjay. Yeah, absolutely. So from my lens, um, first and foremost to me, even though it is a technology modernization fund, the starting point is not technology, it is business mission. So what I'm meaning by that is to me, I look at the business case and there's many components that make up the business case is that's the sort of the first thing I look at from a proposal in evaluating it. The second thing I look for is what I call is readiness to execute. And what I mean by that is we're looking for what I call shovel-ready projects or initiatives by agencies. And clearly we are in emergency times with, because of the COVID-19 pandemic. 
And so we're looking for potential solutions that people are saying, I can execute it as soon as you give me the award. So that's the second thing. The third thing I look for is what I call as an overall approach. And what that means is uh, we're looking for proposals that have a collaborative solution, which includes the CFO, program mission leaders, the CIO organization. And so there is a good collaboration across that. And they have been able to articulate that in their proposals in a very simple enough manner. Things like, you know, they're going to sunset uh, existing systems or existing technologies. Uh, those are elements also we pay attention to. Uh, and the final thing that I look for is really about, uh, when I say the overall approach is, uh, you know, in technology, usually the technology is the easiest thing to, you know, accomplish or overcome. The more important challenges are around policies and business process changes, which are needed to support the technology changes. So those are some highlights that I look at. And then I think my fellow board members also look at some variation of those as well. Are you seeing revamping of business practices very often in these proposals, Sanjay, or are you seeing organizations that are that are digitizing systems that already work fairly well for them and they just need to modernize them? I'd like to say, I, I, I would rather like to see more business process and policy changes because it's very evident to me that, you know, implementing a technology-based solution often goes hand in hand with some associated policy changes or business process changes. And I would uh, like to see a little bit more of that in the balanced approach and not just focus on technology itself. All right, I harped on the TMF board too long in our conversation. We just have a couple of minutes left, but I would be derelict in my duties if I didn't ask you what are some of the highlights of the technology transformation that continues at SBA, Sanjay? Yeah, certainly. So we our journey continues. Uh, certainly our con current priorities uh, continue to be with the nation's economic recovery activities through the PPP and IDLE programs. Uh, some of those programs are still underway. Uh, and, and then so we continue to focus on the delivery of that. But more importantly, we are looking at uh, looking for technology, like I was mentioning earlier, Francis, in re reaching out the underserved communities, the traditionally underserved communities. Uh, and from a small business standpoint, how can technology enable us to reach those things? So we're launching some new initiatives around that. Uh, and then we're looking to continue to keep building our modernization a foundation and keeping it current as you know modernization is a point in time event and if you don't kind of continue to invest in it you'll st start losing that modernization edge so things in investment into machine learning and artificial intelligence algorithm-based decision support systems and automation are some of the areas that I see we'll continue to invest uh, as I look over the horizon over the next 12 to 18 months. Sanjay, next time we come on, I promise you, we'll talk all about SBA. I won't drive you nuts with the TMF stuff. Thank you very much for joining me today. It's great to see you. Thank you for having me. You can read more about what's coming at the Small Business Administration and in the Technology Modernization Fund at fedscoop.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together every day and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. You can subscribe to the Daily Scoop podcast everywhere you get your shows, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and many more places. The Chief Data Officer at VA, Shmendra Paul, is on the show tomorrow. Until then, I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Thanks very much for listening.